The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking to public historian Sarah Beagleson all about her project, Showman's Land Entertainment for the US war effort in World War One. This was a really great episode. I really enjoyed talking to Sarah all about some of the entertainment figures in World War One, how they affected the US war effort and looking at how they had different roles due to their gender and race. It's a really fascinating conversation. Now, in this episode, and I do mention it beforehand, and in this intro, I am suffering from a horrendous cold. So I do sound very gravelly. I do apologise for that. But Sarah sounds brilliant. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And I'll leave you in the warm hands of Sarah. Hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast. I hope you're all doing well. And today, guys, we are joined by public historian Sarah Bilson to talk all about her work, Showman's Land, entertainment for the US war effort in World War One. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm very well. How are you, Jackson? I'm doing very well. I'm really happy to finally get you on the podcast. So I'm looking forward to talking about World War One World War One entertainment with you. Yeah, me too. I'm excited. So my my first question, I ask this for all, all my guests here on the podcast. What inspired you to to do this project and and the podcast that came out from it? Sure. Uh, so I'm from Kansas City, which is right in the middle of the United States. Uh, and I don't want to say Missouri or Kansas because my heart belongs to both of them. And in Kansas City uh, is the National World War One Museum and Memorial. Uh, I don't want to go through the whole history of the memorial and how it became a museum, but it's been a museum since 2006. And that's when I started going to it. And uh, I've always just loved how amazing of a job they do with their exhibits, with their collection. They have wonderful volunteers, uh, the whole shebang. And uh, because of that museum is why I became interested in World War I history. And I was always just uh, flabbergasted why World War I history wasn't as well known uh, as World War II history. Um, and so uh, since probably about the age of 13, I've been on a quest to answer that kind of question. Uh, like, why is World War I not as well known? Uh, or why has it been forgotten about, especially in the United States? In Europe, it's in Europe, it's far more uh, memorialized than it is in this country. I've also been a fan of early 20th century pop culture from the United States. And uh, I was very pleased to come up with an idea combining those two passions for history. Uh, and when I was in undergrad, I did a, my thesis uh, on World War I memorials in the United States. So I was able to answer a lot of those questions uh, related to World War I memory on the monument level, but I wanted to answer the memory issue related to more identity and pop culture. And most people know what the United Service Organization is, the USO in America, and there are equivalent organizations during World War II in other countries as well. Uh, but entertainment for World War One just had not been really delved into. So 
that was kind of the like spark, like, oh my God, I can combine the two things that I am really interested in into one uh, thesis. And then it became a podcast. Uh, as I'm a public historian, uh, I didn't want it to just live uh, in a very dull, dry <laughs> academic paper format because most people wouldn't read it. I, I, I don't blame them. I wouldn't read it. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, what is uh, a format that is modern and accessible that I think people would be interested in? And podcast was the first thing I thought of. Uh, so uh, I wanted uh, to display the the stories I tell on a format that uh, showcased how popular these uh, entertainers were back then on a popular medium today. I, I really, I really like the fact that it's it's something that develops out of your your experiences when you were thirteen. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I think that's really great because a lot of us we we get into history on you know one different subject, but we don't often come back to that subject. It's just our side interest. But for you to yeah. be able to make it your main interest, um, yeah, that's that's brilliant to see that that's the culmination of so many years of interest, love and passion uh, come together as one piece. It's it's absolutely brilliant to hear. And I, cert- I certainly agree with you on the papers. You know, sometimes when you open some of those papers and you just look at the first page, you're like, oh God, this is... <laughs> Yeah, like bless anyone who puts in the time and effort to write the like do the research, do the outlining and write those papers because I've ma- I've written them myself and oof, they are they are hard to do uh, and they are uh, seldom appreciated. Uh, but that is just the reality. No one yeah. wants to read a dense academic work. <laughs> so uh, I kind of want to turn our focus onto your project now, uh, and in your project you break it down into three different individuals i'm sorry i'm sounding so gravelly i've got a cold <laughs> so your three individuals were charlie chaplin elsie janice and james reese europe how did you make the decision to focus on these three then yeah so uh early on i knew that i wanted to focus on figures from the film theater and music industries and i knew that if i did the the entire industries themselves, that would be like a few volumes of uh, a book series. So I was like, let me narrow it down to three individual people. And uh, so the reason why I chose those three is because they were probably a few of the most visible figures uh, for the war effort for the U.S. Uh, They were very popular, um, like household names, essentially, depending on um, the audience. And uh, I also was interested uh, in an intersectional story of not just film, theater, and music, but larger social identities. So for Chaplin, he uh, is an immigrant from England. Uh, Elsie Janis was a woman and James Reese Europe was a black man. Uh, And I wanted to see how their social identities uh, alongside their uh, entertainment industries influenced the war, influenced them and influenced those industries. It, It makes for a really interesting study and project being able to compare the the experience of uh, an immigrant from perhaps the dominant identity within 
America at that point, uh, and with two two groups which were were marginalised in both uh, in different societies. It's really interesting to see the juxtaposition of those positions. Now, I, w- I want to touch firstly on, on Charlie Chaplin, uh, and you made a great point there that he was English. Not a lot of people know that, but you know, how does he become vital to the sale of uh, liberty loans, and what what are liberty loans? You know, he's an immigrant selling something for to American citizens, really. Right. So Liberty Loans uh, was a way to finance uh, the war effort uh, through borrowing. Uh, It's all financial uh, stuff that I can't explain that well uh, beyond my expertise, but that's the basic concept. And uh, the government, the U.S. government, had implemented several Liberty Loan uh, tours, essentially, uh, or Liberty Loan uh, fundraising efforts uh, that uh, were to finance the war. Um, And so when Chaplin came around for the third Liberty Loan, that uh, tour, that's when this takes place, uh, the government specifically sought him out as well as uh, a couple of other film stars at the time, uh, specifically Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. Those three, I can't even describe just how famous these three people were. Uh, Like I try to make uh, a comparison to like uh, superhero actors today. It's even bigger than that, honestly, because uh, there was nobody else uh, on that level of fame. And like film celebrity was just coming about at this time. And uh, so the government reached out to the three of them as a patriotic duty. um, And the three, like there wasn't even like, as far as I know, like any uh, debate or any like uh, compromise or anything. They were just like, yes, uh, we will be doing that. Uh, So in April, 1918, they, went around the country, like each uh, of them focused on a different region. Chaplin was focused mostly in the South. Uh, and uh, they just combined their forces to raise as much money as possible. And everyone was just thrilled with this because uh, these film stars had literally only been on screen for uh, most audience members. I think it's I think it's really interesting how they were able to you know, go on these tours, divide the country, but instantly say yes to the government as well. And particularly for Chaplin, when he's not an American, he's an immigrant at that point. Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic. So I kind of want to touch on that a little bit more then, is, you know, he's he's an Englishman, he's doing something, a patriotic duty for the Americans. How was he able to make this a patriotic exercise for himself? Absolutely, yeah. So uh Another reason why Chaplin and also Mary Pickford, Mary Pickford was from Canada. uh, They were uh, also just wanting to give back to the United States. Uh, Chaplin had lived in the U.S. uh, only since about 1910, give or take. Um, And he started making films in early 1914. So he had been uh, a an overnight like success story, like American dream. He is the definition of it because uh, he had grown up in poverty and just achieve, achieved like worldwide stardom. And when 
he was starting his film career not long after uh, the war started in Europe. And uh, because he was becoming so well-known, he was a household name, uh, like you can only be so popular when people start to criticize you. Uh, so uh, critics from mostly his home country in England uh, were perplexed as to why a man uh, of fighting age was not serving in the military. Uh, and so he, he received mostly uh, negative criticism from England as to why he was not serving uh, for the British military. Fun fact, Chaplin was five foot five. Um, and uh, so he may have been too short. Uh, and uh, and he had his own reasons for not serving. Um, and it's not quite clear why he didn't serve. But ultimately, he uh, made so many movies and uh, he would have been very distracting, I think, for uh, troops if he had served on the actual war front. Uh, so uh, because he was like responding to uh, English criticism as well as like, well, I live here now. I am a, like in a way a U.S. citizen because I make money here. I live here. Uh, I have friends here, etc. My life is here now. I ought to give back. Uh, so that's why uh, he he tended to do so. It's it's quite nice to hear that he was he was able to be able to make that decision in his head that you know actually I'm I'm here. I need to give back to these people who are who are who are giving to me. Uh, and it's very interesting to hear that that dynamic as well. You know, uh, a lot of the UK curriculum makes make sure that students hear about world war one hear about world war two and, and part of that is you know hearing about the way that uh conscientious objectors or um people didn't list in the beginning were treated uh, and it's it's interesting to see how that's even extending to to someone who's as famous as charlie chaplin yeah and i think he may have been presented a white feather, which uh, for listeners, that was a sign of uh, cowardice. Uh, if you were presented a white feather, usually from a woman, but I can't recall exactly if he was given one or not. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, especially when he's so famous and wealthy, he was making more money than most people could even dream of, that it would have been just uh, wrong for him to turn his back on the sorts of people he uh, grew around, grew up with, uh, like very, very poor people who likely would have been serving for their countries and dying for them. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when he's going on these tours and he's interacting with these kind of people and he's trying to get them to sign up for these pro programs for the United States, there was not a homogenous opinion that America needed to get involved in this war. There was not a homogenous opinion that people should be signing up to pay for these liberty loans. So. Right. Did did Chaplin encounter any kind of issues apart from you know some of these negative press from uh, British? Did he right. encounter any issues when he was on these tours? Uh, the only uh, issues I can think of, <laughs> it's it's half I'm half joking is uh, like people wanted to throw pies at him. <laughs> uh, that is which is true. There are at least two instances of people like wanting to like participate in slapstick with him and uh some of the other film stars uh but in all seriousness uh most people were very welcoming uh to chaplin and company uh because 
they had never seen these people before, especially because a lot of people in very small communities likely never left those small communities. So it was uh, having these people from the outside who were just larger than life to them, excuse me, larger than life to them coming there. And uh, I, I suppose the only uh, like disappointments audiences felt was that he never dressed as his character, the tramp. Uh, and uh, anyone who, everyone recognizes the tramp without ever seeing a Chaplin film. Uh, he wears uh, a small bowler hat, uh, a little toothbrush mustache, a tight jacket, baggy pants and large shoes and has a bamboo cane. Uh, everyone who recognizes film history recognizes this character. Um, and uh, so he, when he was selling Liberty Loans on the tour, he never dressed as the tramp and he never like did his little walk that he was famous for, the little tramp shuffle. None of that because this was serious business. And people honestly didn't recognize him because... Uh, like even I, I've seen photos of Chaplin for years and he looks totally different from his character. Uh, he's a lot more serious looking. Um, he doesn't have facial hair uh, <laughs> and uh, he wears normal fitting clothes and the tramp just looks like a clown, um, like a more gentlemanly clown. Like it's all like his character is all about contradictions, uh, but a clown nonetheless. And uh, so people wanted to see the character in person and he wouldn't do it because uh, his belief, which he may have believed at the time or he thought about years later in his autobiography, uh, was that the tramp only existed on screen. Like that is not something that exists in reality. <laughs> so uh, I think that was uh, something that, people were just not expecting and they really wanted him to be like his character but he's a character he's not a real person i think i think it's really interesting how you know there's a parallel between the audience of that day and the parallel with the audience of today mm -hmm. where they're making no distinction between the character that chaplin's playing on screen and the the character of the person that he actually is and, and trying to engage in those slapstick activities with him when you don't even know the person, but you feel like you know the character uh, is yeah, very interesting. Heroes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so Chaplin's mainly, uh, for want of a better word, serving on the home front, the American yes. home front. Uh, and I want to move to the, the war front now uh, and look at the second of, of your studies, which is, uh, looking at that entertainment figure, Elsie Janis. Now, this isn't. This might be a name that you know some people haven't heard of. I, I, I certainly hadn't heard of her. So, you know, who was Elsie, and what did she do? Elsie Janis. Uh, she was a vaudevillian performer in the early 20th century. Her and Chaplin are actually. They were born the same year. Uh, they were contemporaries. They both started in theater, uh, and she was just. But she started. Uh, I mean, they both started in childhood, but she became a household name, I think, earlier than Chaplin did. And uh, she was just very, like, one of the guys, uh, and uh, she was very popular. 
uh, and very funny, just like triple threat talented. When the war started, Elsie Janice was performing in England at the time. And she remarked how she was ready. She was ready to go. She was ready to fight. She was ready to perform anything to support the allied cause. Uh, like already there was uh, people deciding like, oh, we're for the allies. Oh, we're for Germany. Like people were already along those lines. And I think because she had an affinity for England, uh, she was for the allied cause from the get go. Uh, as a lot of Americans were, but early, that early on, it was still very much like, that's not our, that's not our war. <laughs> um, and so Elsie uh, Janice uh, had already started performing for British troops when the war started. And then when America joined, uh, you couldn't get Elsie Janice to the Western Front fast enough. Uh, she uh, was thrilled to be able to perform for more American troops because she remarked that, that she was just an American girl. Uh, and Janice, uh, I think she performed like somewhere between like a dozen shows a day or like I think like 600 shows in like 18 months, like something ridiculous on the war front, like in trenches. And, uh, and these were just short live shows, uh, where she's singing and dancing mostly, uh, and telling jokes, but not like, a, a scripted show. Uh, this is vaudeville. This is musical. Uh, this is, uh, just variety show stuff. And, uh, everyone liked her. Every, everyone just thought she was charismatic and charming and fun and uh, especially during the war for troops, because they uh, rarely saw women unless they were nurses or truck drivers, ambulance drivers, canteen workers, etc. So for a woman to perform for troops in very dangerous conditions was a marvel. She, she certainly seems incredibly inspirational in her tenacity. Uh, to kind of get to that front uh, and and help out those troops, and there's there's a couple of points there that I really want to unpack about Elsie uh, because they're they're really fascinating. I think the first one that I kind of want to touch on uh, before moving on to uh, her her perception and gender is that I want I want to look at the troops. You know, how did her performances affect their morale? Because you know if you know, if anyone's heard those stories of World War One trenches and, and the World War and World War One in general, it was an incredibly destructive and depressing conflict. So how how was she able to affect their morale? Certainly, yeah. Uh troops uh on every side, Allied, Germans, etc., they were dealing with a mixture of terror and boredom like it was if you weren't fighting you were bored out of your mind and uh especially for allied troops such as the british and the french uh those uh soldiers in the trenches were there for months or years at a time uh it wasn't summer camp it was uh truly awful and devastating and to have any glimpse of joy was like bring it in want definitely want that as much as possible. So uh, like she, no matter what, 
was a welcoming figure for these soldiers. Um, and from and I'm speaking from the American perspective because she mostly performed for American troops, uh, but some English troops and French troops here and there. Uh, there is uh, an instance uh, that a few authors describe that um, soldiers would uh, like like swarm her truck when they knew she was arriving. Uh, like she was up and down the Western front and uh, would get escorted uh, by people. Uh, she would wear just like day clothes, which back then fashion was a lot more formal. So wearing specific clothing uh, in public was a big deal. Uh, and and in such a casual environment as a trench, if you can call it casual, uh, like a woman wearing day clothes was a big deal because most women were uniformed. Uh, and for the troops and their morale, they were thrilled to see an American woman uh, and an American woman who was only going to make them feel good, uh, who was going to have them sing songs with her and uh, and she was going to like riff on uh, some troops likely uh, uh proposed marriage to her uh like and uh she would always like turn it into a joke like um like how can I marry you when I got like a dozen more uh proposals from from yesterday or something along those lines uh like I'm speculating a little bit uh and uh like troops would even like censor themselves around her because they wanted to come across as gentlemanly as possible because the gender norms were a lot uh stricter back then uh and like but she just wanted to be one of the guys so uh that kind of goes into i what i expect you to ask me next but the morale of the troops went up immensely uh even when everyone knew uh she would perform for troops and they would likely be uh, going off into battle the next day, and she would perform for those same troops that survived in the hospitals if they were wounded. It, it must have, it must have been a great feeling for her to know that she was, she was providing a light relief uh, in in quite a dark period for most of these men. Um, and and I, I do want to build upon that next part where you you've alluded to that I'm going to move to, and we've already spoke about it you know her her gender role then uh, her role or how would her gender affected her role and the her perception um or the perception of her in the war uh she's she's a woman as you're saying in, in day clothes in a a dom a male dominated area you know how how does that how does that affect or how yeah how does her how does that affect her gender and the perception of her in the war Totally. Yeah. Uh, she, um, was, she was still a woman. So she still was like viewed with like kind of a voyeuristic lens. When I was going through like source materials, they don't go that in, like the primary sources don't go that in depth as you want them to be. Uh, so they're not going to outright say like, she's sexy. Um, even though they were likely thinking it like, Oh, look at those, those legs or something like that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Janice, uh, was very keen about her gender. She would, uh, even remark how, uh, 
like a little bit insecure she felt uh, when soldiers in drag would perform, uh, like prancing about in dresses or whatnot. And she offered to like loan dresses to them. Uh, So she was aware of how soldiers perform gender, how she performed gender, and she never let anyone else dictate her own perception of herself and her gender. Uh, And like, she would probably be classified as like a tomboy today um, because journalists even reference uh, her masculine traits, uh, quote unquote. uh, And uh, she would... uh, Cause she wasn't afraid of kind of like spreading her legs and like kicking her legs high or uh, telling kind of a, a, like a racy joke here and there. Uh, and, uh, and she didn't mind when soldiers uh, like spit and were dirty and all these things that guys were uh, without the worry of the presence of a woman. Like she wanted that. She wanted to be one of the guys. And uh, I don't know how honest she was when she said that she wanted to fight alongside them. Uh, She may have just been saying that, but part of me is like, maybe she did. (laughs) Uh, Maybe she did want to like bring up a rifle or maybe it was just her, uh, trying to show like how pro-war she was and uh, how much she supported the soldiers, even go so going so far as saying, I will fight for them uh, and I will fight with them. Because she, I think she kind of wanted to. It sounds absolutely amazing how she was able to navigate that space, uh, which was so, without falling into that, that kind of... Um, I forget what the word is, that stereotype, there we go, of um, like that locker room kind of attitude and that humor that she was able to to navigate that. Uh, yeah, and I just wanted to add one more thing. Yeah, of course. Like, the war itself uh, totally transformed everything about society and culture. So uh, gender norms were also being transformed at this time, which is probably why she was able to get away with like impolite uh, feminine behavior uh, that would not be allowed on the home front at all. No, no. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting to see how she was so successful at doing that as well. Uh, and, the, and those tro- troops and some of them certainly were in love with her uh, shown through those, those proposals that you were talking about. Now, I, I want to move on to that, that third figure who uh, is James Reese Europe, and I, I think he is an absolutely fascinating character, and I really want to dive into him a little bit more. Could you, could you tell us what he was like and, and what made him different from these other performers that we'd already looked at? Yeah, uh, James Reese Europe, or Jim Europe, as he was known amongst uh friends and family, etc. He was just an amazing figure. Uh, He was uh, a musician, started in the early like jazz uh, community in New York. Uh, And I think he was from somewhere in the South. I can't recall off the top of my head. Uh, But his career began in New York in the late 1890s. And uh, at that time, it was very segregated, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, and uh, more often than not, Black musicians were just not hired. And 
or they were barred from working in the places they'd be, been hired by. Uh, so a lot of contradictions uh, that, of course, are they make zero sense whatsoever. And James Reese Europe was very ambitious. And he started uh, in 1910 the Clef Club Orchestra, which was uh, a community of about 200 Black musicians uh, from Harlem, uh, the New York City area, mostly Harlem. Uh, and it would be a place where uh, musicians could have somewhere to make bookings and uh, be contacted and a place that was central to them. And, uh, and the Clef Club Orchestra was very popular. Um, they would perform for many uh, white audiences as well as black and uh and because of how good they were and how good their music was, uh, they were contacted, specifically Jim Europe was contacted by uh, Vernon and Irene Castle. And the Castles were just a very popular dancing couple. They were white, uh, dancing couple during the 1910s. Uh, I'm trying to like, like they were Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers at the time, uh, just very famous and popular. And they wanted... Jim Europe to uh, conduct their band for them when they would perform. And so Jim Europe toured with them across the country. They did not care that he was black. Um, they just saw how talented he was and wanted him. He toured with them for a couple of years. And then that's uh, when the he could see on the horizon, like America's going to join the war any, any day now. I should train to be an officer. And uh, so he not just wanted to be a very talented, well-known, popular musician, famous musician. He also wanted to support the U.S. He was patriotic, too, even though the U.S. throughout hundreds of years has been very racist to anyone who isn't white. Uh, and uh, but it's still home to many people, uh, regardless of race, and to him joining the war effort and actually fighting in the war could showcase how uh, Black people were patriotic too. Black people were brave and were willing to sacrifice for a country that constantly beats them down. Uh, and so in many ways, not only was he a musician and uh, a soldier officer during the war. He was a civil rights activist. Um, and it's, and we'll probably talk about it later. Uh, just, uh, it's a shame that he's not as well known. Like him and Elsie Janice are just not as well known as Chaplin, of course, and uh, other figures later on would come about. He's, you know, I think, I think it's particularly fascinating how he feels so dutiful uh, feels a duty to to protect a country that's not working to protect him uh, particularly well, and he wants to make that. And we're going to talk about that in a bit, but he wants to make that a staple of his identity, uh, which is which is so interesting considering the the attitudes towards African Americans in that in that time and even after this time as well. So I, I want to focus on his 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 war career and his soldiering career now, uh, and he becomes part of the the Harlem. Hellfighters. So how, how does this unit c 
come about and, and how does it gain its nickname? Because it's it's a pretty awesome nickname, if I might say. It is a very awesome nickname. Uh, the Harlem Hellfighters uh, started off as the 15th New York National Guard and then reorganized uh, when American uh, when America joins the war as the 369th Infantry Unit. So it was always uh, an all-Black unit. Uh, the U.S. didn't desegregate the military until after World War II. Uh, with, that, that was uh, Harry Truman, President Truman, who did that. Uh, but World War I, everything is segregated. And uh, the Harlem Hellfighters were one of the first units to go over to uh, Europe to fight. They were uh, one of the first units to actually have combat. And they uh, fought in many battles and were probably there for one of the longest periods of any U.S. infantry service uh, unit. And uh, they received their nickname. There's a lot of uh, legends as to how they got the Harlem Hellfighter nickname because it is, uh, pardon my language, badass. And uh, some say uh, Germany named them that uh, because they were just like nobody wanted to fight them. It was like, they were just so incredibly like fierce and uh, like you wouldn't want to mess with them. Uh, Just notorious for their uh, battlefield uh, bravery and uh, just not letting up. And uh, the likely uh, scenario uh, that I believe has, um, credibility is that uh, the Harlem Hellfighters were uh, given that, uh, bestowed that nickname by American newspapers spreading propaganda at the time. Uh, And I don't know uh, why they named them that uh, necessarily. Uh, And because it was also like, I think it was because like even black people, are fighting in this war and showing just how worth it it is to defend American democracy. Um, like it's not just why everyone is involved in this war effort. Um, and uh, the Harlem Hellfighters wasn't just an all black unit. There was also mem- many uh, uh, service members from Puerto Rico that uh, fought in uh, the Harlem Hellfighters that were specifically recruited uh, for the band uh, that Jim Europe uh, conducted. It's really cool to see how they were able to come across that nickname either through people being terribly terribly afraid of, of, of coming across them in combat or even the, for, for the split second that the American media has decided to support African-Americans when it's beneficial. Uh, right. They come up, exactly. yeah, they come up with an awesome nickname for him. Uh, so you, you mentioned a really cool point in that, uh, is that the band, that unit's band, uh, and, and Europe plays a role in that. So how does Europe combine his his identity as a, a musician, an entertainer, uh, and this new facet of it, of being a soldier? Uh, and how does that affect the US war effort? Because he must have had an awful lot going on trying to be these three things uh, right. in quite a hard space. Definitely. Like uh, in uh, the memoirs of Jim Europe, despite the title, it's not written by him uh, because of his early death. Uh, uh, it was written by Noble Sissel, who was a member of the band of the Harlem Hellfighters. Uh, 
And uh, in that memoir, Noble Sissel describes uh, during training how uh, he, he as a Noble Sissel was uh, a victim of racial aggression by uh, a white me- a member of the military. Um, and I, th- and they were at a hotel somewhere uh, and Jim Europe saunters inside, very calm and collected, uh, alleviates the tension and the aggression and the, and the weird fighting amongst Americans stops. Uh, and, uh, and that was Jim Europe. He uh, was not an aggressive man. Uh, he was uh, looked up to so much by his fellow uh, soldiers, by fellow musicians, family, like anyone who saw him were just in awe of him. And uh, when the war started, uh, he was con- he was uh, contacted by a colonel, Colonel Hayward, I believe his name is, uh, to st- start a band uh, to help morale on the war front. And initially, Jim Europe was apprehensive about it, just like, uh, I am wanting to actually fight, like that's my focus right now. And Noble Sissel claims that he was the one to convince Europe to uh, do both. Like, why not both? Um, you can do it. And Jim Europe, like the, year, the gears start turning. It's like, actually, this could be good in many ways. Uh, not only can I showcase uh, Black patriotism through fighting, but I can also uh, show how beneficial Black culture is to the wider uh, American landscape and music at large. Um, and that's what he did. Uh, the The Harlem Hellfighters band uh, conducted by Jim Europe is credited for bringing jazz music to the European continent, uh, which is phenomenal. <laughs> and uh, I can't recommend their music enough. It's just so good and fun. Uh, so he uh, saw a lot of ways he could benefit both himself not both, he could benefit himself, uh, his country, and uh, Black people at large, and black, black being what being Black is. So he's just a tremendous figure and doesn't get the credit he is due. It's so, and I've used these words so many times in this podcast, but it is so fascinating and, and cool how he was able to combine them, but also be such an inspirational figure and an instrumental figure in bringing jazz and exporting black culture to a separate continent uh when and and that and that culture is and those and that music is now so well appreciated across europe um that you know he's got he's got a lot to to be thanked for uh, and it's very interesting characters to learn about as well definitely and uh i mentioned that he had a an early death uh anyone who is listening has to listen to the podcast to find yeah. out why it's a pretty major part of the story i don't want to steal away from uh that story of the death so if you guys want to listen to it head to, to sarah's podcast and look at her project but i've got this final fun question for you sarah now i've i've found that you are a fan of early to mid 20th century films so which is your favorite and why? 
I knew this question was yeah. and it's so hard to give an answer because I love so many films. I love Chaplin films. I love Shirley Temple films. I love Precode. I like there's just so many. But the first one that came to my mind uh, is a 1950 film called Harvey starring James Stewart and Josephine Hall and a few and a few other uh, ensemble members. It is just a delightful movie about a six foot three and a half invisible white rabbit. There's not, it's just a feel good movie. uh, So charming, so delightful, and just brings a smile to anybody's face. So highly recommend Harvey to anyone who hasn't seen or heard of it. I I think that's a good answer. Um, I'll have to go away and watch that one myself, but it sounds like a really nice weekend, uh, relaxing film to kind of pick you up before the week starts. Big time. (laughs) So obviously people are going to want to find out what happens to James Reese Europe. They were going to want to listen to this, you know, this is only a snippet of the World War One entertainment industry and, and Charlie Chaplin and Elsa yeah. Janis. So where can people go away, listen to your podcast and, and, and find you and your other projects online? Sure. Uh, so people can find me at sarahbeagleson.com. Uh, that's Sarah with an H, B as in boy, I-E-G-E-L-S-E-N as in Nancy, dot com. <laughs> I'm used to spelling my name all the time. Uh, sarahbeagleson.com. Uh, there's a link to uh, the podcast website uh, on uh, on the we- on my website, professional website. Uh, it's too much of a mouthful to uh give that domain out so uh just go to my professional website it's linked there uh and when you get to the podcast website uh you can learn about each of the figures there's photographs uh links to sources as well as lists for where i found uh the music that's featured in the podcast as well as films i mentioned and any other entertainers uh who participate in participated in war effort work, whether they were producing uh, specific uh, productions or songs uh, that were about the war or were actually fighting in the war. Like Buster Keaton fought in the war, uh, one of Chaplin's uh, rivals, quote unquote, uh, and uh, and lots of other figures. George M. Cohen uh, wrote Over There and uh, You're a Grand Old Flag. Um and a bunch of other uh, songs. So, uh, yeah, that that website is linked onto my professional website, uh, and my podcast is also on YouTube, Acast, Spotify, Apple Music, and Audible, I believe, uh, called Showman's Land. And I must say, it's a it's a great podcast, and I learned so much from it. And the website as well is a great accompanying resource to it as well. So, I really recommend that everyone goes away and has a look and listen to them. So thank you very much for coming on, Sarah. I really appreciate your time and yeah, uh, you enjoy so talking to you. Me. Yeah, That's thank right. you so yeah. much. <laughs> and if you guys are listening and you want to support everything I do here at History of Jackson, make sure to subscribe, with, subscribe to History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. And I will see you all next week for our next episode.